you can speak to GPT-4 like you would speak to another human. We know how to communicate. I don't speak protein. I don't know anyone else that does. Do I spell it out in amino acids? How did the best machine learning practitioners get involved in the field? What challenges have they faced? What has helped them flourish? Let's ask them. Welcome to Learning from Machine Learning. I'm your host, Seth Levine. Hello and welcome to Learning from Machine Learning. On this episode, we have a very special guest, Dr. Michelle Gill. Um, she's the tech lead and applied research manager at NVIDIA. She works on projects uh, like BioNemo and BioFoundation models, um, frameworks and inference service for AI-assisted drug discovery. Uh, recently, she gave the keynote at uh, the most recent PyData NYC. It was one of my favorite talks, and I'm thrilled to have you on the podcast. Thank you for the invitation, Seth. It is awesome to be here. I'm really excited. Me too. Um, so you are a little unique for the podcast uh, with my background in NLP. So yeah, why don't you kick us off? Uh, what's your background and what initially attracted you to machine learning? Yep. So i proud that I don't fit many molds <laughs> where it is a badge of honor. Um, I did my PhD in structural biology and biophysics at, at Yale. And then for postdoc, I studied enzyme dynamics with a technique called nuclear magnetic resonance spectroscopy. NMR for short. Um, I was particularly unique in that I didn't really do computational work for, for my scientific career. I was what we would call a wet lab scientist. I actually did, did experiments, expressed proteins, and studied them. Um, when I became a scientist at the NIH, it was around 2014, um, that's when AlexNet uh, one in the ImageNet competition, and it became very clear to me that there was probably going to be something to this machine learning thing that, that many people were very excited about at the time, um, and that it was going to, you know, while it had already had some impact in various fields, it was going to have tremendous impact across many fields. Um, and certainly I wanted to stay very close to science, um, but I wanted to learn more about this and basically hopefully do this for my career. Like I said at that time, machine learning and science wasn't exactly a thing yet. Um, certainly not to the level uh, that it is now, but but I've managed to stay pretty close, and and now it's actually pretty easy to 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 work at those those intersections. So, very nice. Yeah, I think AlexNet was a moment for a lot of people, both in and out of the field, uh, being able to see something that could come in and just like have error rates on such a hard problem, and it started to become more tangible that this sort of stuff was going to be usable and was going to be able to be applied to uh, to other fields. Um, okay, yeah, so back in 2014, during that time, you were, you were working in the lab, but now fast forwarding, now you are doing some computational stuff, right? So right. being able to see that difference uh, between like the hands-on work and how fast things are moving now, can, can, can you speak to that? So I think it impacts the way, so certainly having worked in the, in the wild lab, it, it impacts the way I think about data and perceptions of, you know, like it helps you deeply understand the data where there might be errors. Um, but certainly the field now of machine learning and science is moving so fast. When I, when I gave my Pi data talk, I had a, a slide that was, it was a joke, but not really, which is like, by the time you finish reading this, there will be a new protein design paper out completely revolutionizing the field. Right. And it's, it's kind of true. 
I actually, one of my side projects is using some retrieval augmented generation models to identify and recommend new literature as it comes out for me because it's a non-trivial thing to follow the literature <laughs> these days. Um, so, so yeah, it's changing incredibly fast. I think there's there's so many potential areas where it's gonna it's starting to and, and will change the field. I think we don't we don't always know exactly the right the right ways it's gonna fit in, but there are many many people trying to figure that out. So. Yeah, um, machine learning, AI, NLP, the field's moving so fast. Um, the joke is that by the time it gets peer reviewed, it will be it'll outdated. be outdated. Um, so yeah. that's why there's nice things like archive, where people can just kind of get it directly to uh, to their readers. There's I, some pros and cons to it, though. Yeah. Of course, there 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 certainly are. You know, you always have to evaluate what's there um, and understand where. You know, you have to re learn to read between the lines uh, what the strengths and actual weaknesses of, of a particular piece of research are. You don't always know. Um, but I also think that is a model. The open access is, is a model that has allowed machine learning to gain a lot of traction. Um, certainly the field of science is undergoing some transitions and not all of scientific literature has been open access, but that's a lot changing. Um, I think that's that's been very helpful to the growth and the acceptance of machine learning. So yeah, absolutely. So in this field, the limited amount of stuff that I know about it, I'm very interested in it. I wish I wish I knew knew more, but I could not can't go by without uh, talking a little bit about AlphaFold. Um, what were your initial uh, reactions to it? Uh, could you tell us some more about it? Sure. So AlphaFold is a model. It's called. It's a family of models called equivariant models um, and the purpose is to predict the three-dimensional structure of, of, of a protein. So biology, you know, we can talk maybe a bit about this in a moment, but we often, you can be represented with text, um, which is not a coincidence because that's how we communicate with each other. So it's not surprising that we, we have developed ways to represent um, various biological moieties uh, in, in different fashions with, with text. And it's certainly, it's a valid representation. Those models have power and use and advantages, but to describe a three-dimensional protein structure, um, you, as you might guess, often need three dimensions. There, there's some other ways to do it, but, um, so AlphaFold takes in a sequence, um, it's called amino acids. That's what we, that's the, the building block of a protein. Um, it takes that amino acid sequence, there's one letter abbreviations for each of the, the 20 naturally occurring amino acids, and then it predicts the three-dimensional coordinates of, of that protein. Um, right. that, and so in 2018, AlphaFold won CASP, which is the Critical Assessment of Protein Structure. Uh, it's a protein structure prediction competition. And there's a great paper written by a colleague of mine, Jeff Hoke, um, and he went in and sort of examined all the metrics and all the different competition types of metrics that were measured from CASP. And it, AlphaFold didn't just win, it, it dominated. Like it, right. it really, really changed the way we think about machine learning. Um, and that was sort of the AlexNet moment for science, um, in my opinion. So I started doing machine learning in 2014, but you know, not too, too, too far down the road, we had our own moment of intense realization that this was going to change everything. And, you know, there are AlphaFold, there are certainly challenges with AlphaFold. I'm not saying it's a, it's a panacea. 
um, drug discovery um, and science just in general are are challenging and it has limitations but of course we iterate on those you know that's how the field progresses so right so some of the work um, that you're doing at NVIDIA so can you tell us about like BioNemo Sure. So BioNemo, as you briefly alluded to, it's an inference service and a framework. Um, the inference service is models from the community, including AlphaFold, OpenFold, ES, you know, all these derivatives of the folds, the folders. Um, there's models for docking small molecules in, in uh, proteins and finding the binding pocket of it. Um, there are protein. There are models for protein uh, representation learning. Um, it's, there's a model called um, ESM, which was developed by a group um, at Meta at Fair. They're now their own their own group, um, and there's there are other models as well for small molecules. Um, and so we basically accelerated those checkpoints as much as possible. Uh, we did our NVIDIA thing with them, uh, put them behind an API, and so they are accessible to users. There's a Python client. Um, individuals, companies developing software could put those API calls into their software if they don't want to host their models. There's load balancing, you know, there's all these nice features. Um, it's scalable, so you don't have to deal with that. Uh, there's also a framework that's more for ML researchers um, to train and develop their own models. Very cool. So the users are both, say, research institutes and companies as well? Yeah, I would say the users range from um, data scientists to even bench scientists who, who want to use an API um, to, to researchers who want to build their own stuff. Right. So, yeah, you know, being at NVIDIA, um, I wouldn't say the first thing that I would think of is AI drug discovery. Uh, well, I guess the AI part, but I wouldn't put NVIDIA and drug discovery together. But yeah, so can you tell us why, why is NVIDIA interested um, in, doing, in doing this type of work? Yeah, great question. And I get that a lot. NVIDIA's objective is not to become a drug discovery company. We want to enable those doing drug discovery or developing software for drug discovery with the, the, the best of what we can offer on GPUs. Um, NVIDIA is in kind of a unique position because we do make the hardware and a lot of the software um, along the stack building up to BioNemo we, we touch. So we can surface um, optimizations and the best of what the hardware has to offer. Um, in BioNemo, and uh, in turn, what users need and ask for and, and pain points can get filtered back to us, and that can influence hardware, software, you never know, down the road. So that's that's really our objective. Right. That makes a lot of sense. Um, so there's probably like some, you, you talked about it in your Pi Data talk, like there's this cyclic nature of supply and, and demand, right, between the hardware and developing these sorts of solutions. So you have this, this architecture that you can run things in parallel and you can do all of these amazing things. You can test out all, all of this stuff and you have um, these sorts of machine learning models that can create tons of different, whatever task you're trying to do. Um, mm -hmm. So that, yeah, that's, that's, it's a, it's a very interesting relationship. Um, what, 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 so just talking about, um, well, let's, let's back up for a second. AI drug discovery. Like why is that, so important why, why is it something uh that people should care about um you know why should we put it you know why should people be thinking about it yeah the drug discovery process is long and expensive and expensive um for a particular class of drugs small molecules it's something like you know close to three billion dollars and 
10-ish years, and there's tons of failures along the way. It's a very manual process, um, and there's certainly a lot of repetitiveness. So that's a place where you can start to think that machine learning might come in. For example, small molecule development, once we have a a candidate, a lead that binds to a a protein, then it's optimized and that's a very, you know, there's the molecules synthesized by a chemist, it's tested in an assay, it's evaluated, you know, this, this design make test cycle goes over and over. Um, we can, if we can start to help superpower those chemists by enabling some of that to be done in silico, then our objective is to make this process faster, make their lives better. Um, we can give scientists the power that they need to to work more efficiently. It must be pretty tricky. I mean, evaluation is always a tough thing um, for any machine learning, really, I guess, any problem. Um, but when do you know, um, okay, like, you know, in silicon, like this molecule, this protein has reached the point where it's time. Like, let's let's actually synthesize this thing and let, let let's start testing it in, in a real lab. Not a you know in a, in a physical lab. Yeah, I, I I can't answer that because it's certainly different for every um, every application, um, every chemist, every model. Um, right. So yeah, so my objective, I think you to use these effectively, you would have to get a sense of how well does the model perform on this assay, um, and certainly that's something developing generalized models um, like like foundation models, for example, that. Um, that can then be specialized by users um, is that's why it's important for NVIDIA, right? We have, we can train these powerful models, but users will specialize them to their, their particular drug program, their particular target. Um, You know, we, we understand that certainly there's a lot of specifics that have to go into this even after the model's created. Right. That makes a lot of sense. So you're more focusing on the tools and enabling people to do this type of work. Exactly. Um, so talking about, and you alluded to it before, some of the overlap or how you can use NLP to help you with biology, where do you see that there's overlap and where are there some differences? Yeah, so um, there are, yeah, like I said, you know, natural language is, is, is an excellent way to represent biology. Um, the different moieties in biology, DNA, RNA, proteins, um, small, small molecules, they all have their own language. Um, that can be used, and that enables us to beg, borrow, and steal from all of these NLP uh, breakthroughs that have happened, um, and that has really uh, helped jumpstart that field. Um, it's also there's there's considerations from a biological standpoint, which is that there's a lot of NLP data of text data available. Um, for example, with proteins, we have many more protein sequences than we do protein structures than three-dimensional structures like we like we discussed earlier. So right. in some contexts, you, you have a lot more data. So that's very powerful. Um, I think differences in NLP are, are certainly like vocabulary. Um, many times biological vo- vocabularies are like tokenized three, three letters at a time or every amino acid, in which case, you know, there's 20 amino acids. So the vocabulary size is certainly less than 50. Right. So that and the distribution of the tokens is very different. So those are ways that biology um, doesn't necessarily always follow the same trends as NLP. We, we don't 
we, we still try to do experiments empirically. Sure, X, Y, and Z features improve the model for NLP, but we, we need to do the test for biology as well. Right. Um, yeah, it's so interesting to hear you mention like tokenization because um, mm-hmm. that's something in natural language processing that you know you're always thinking about and it's like what level of analysis do you want to be thinking of your problem how do you want to break mm-hmm. down your problem and then that's the for any any sort of problem that's how you're gonna you know you're gonna have to figure out what should be the proper way way of tokenizing these things yeah. and that's an open question in biology i would say yeah there certainly have been explorations to do more other types of tokenization but um I, I don't think anything has had sufficient like sticking power yet. So that's interesting. Yeah, there's always new things coming along in um, in NLP. Like for a while, there was like subword, like subword tokenization, um, and then when you're doing sort of sentence tokenization, well, you know, how should you do the sentence tokenization now with retrieval augmented generation? It's like mm-hmm. how how should you do the chunking properly? Because right. it's always about capturing the amount of meaning mm-hmm. and getting the right context that you have. So, right. and it's interesting because like for, you think with language, like, oh, we understand language. We should be able to do this. It's hard there. <laughs> so right. I can't I imagine in, in, right. in, in bio, biochem, it must be extreme. It must be extremely difficult to sort of understand what's the smallest level of meaning um, in, in some of these, for these systems. Right. And we you don't know, too. It may be different for different questions, right? Like, this is a fundamental challenge. If you want to, you know, things with, like, in-context learning, if you, you can speak to GPT-4 like you would speak to another human, we know how to communicate. I don't speak protein. I don't know anyone <laughs> else that does. Do I spell it out in amino acids? I don't know. Right. How do I tell it? So, you know, that has led to a lot of sort of ideas that the multi uh, sort of multimodal models might be a way to go if you actually want to speak to a model um that will design a protein for you the way you would speak about how you're going to do an experiment um so certainly those are active areas and that's a difference as well i guess with biology versus nlp um but yeah to your to your back to the discussion about tokenization we don't always know proteins have they have a whole hierarchy of structure right there's amino acid sequence there's something called secondary structure, and then there's the tertiary structure, which is sort of the 3D coordinates. Maybe you need to break it along secondary structure um, entities. And I many sort of sentence piece type tokenizers will actually do that a little bit. I've done some experimentation, Um, but not always. And so, yeah, what's the right way? Or is it, do you need to break it along three-dimensional domains for it to be useful? Maybe, I don't know. But then it's not always the same amino acid in some of the amino acids are kind of interchangeable. So then you need to be able to account for that too. So, right. So I can't even imagine it's so tricky. Um, I mean, I'm just going to keep coming back to natural language processing, thinking about different domains. Right. And like you think about a task, say like sentiment analysis. Right. Mm -hmm. And then you think about it in, um, you know, product reviews or you think about it in news articles or you think about it in dialogue. And those three, yes, they're all sentiment analysis, but those Mm -hmm. three are all extremely different tasks. um, And you have to do specific things for all of those things. So I'm sure there's parallels uh, for the, for the work that you're doing, trying to understand, you know, 
what is the specific context and what's the specific methodology that would work for this for this type of problem. Um, yeah, so it's probably absolutely. a lot of experimentation that needs to get done there. And another thing that I would say that it's very hard, you as we as speakers of the English language have some like gauge whether or not that the prediction of that sentiment is close, way off, right? Like we can kind of sniff test that. It's very hard with proteins. Um, same thing. I don't speak protein. So we don't know. You know, we have to compare it to existing assays. We have to, you know, be in a situation where one can run assays or these lab in the loop ideas, which is it's a very smart way of doing things. Right. Um, but yeah, it's that's another challenging part with biology that we don't have a great sense of how correct a, a prediction is. And there are many um, predictive tasks um, as you as you alluded to that that are useful that are useful in the drug design process. Um, certainly, the value of a foundation model would be the very rich predictive embeddings that it produces. So, very cool. So let's uh, yeah, let's go into it. What what does it take to create or try to create or begin to even think about um, bio foundation models? Yeah. Well, certainly, first and foremost, I think a data strategy. Um, the, the, the hard lessons learned, I think by, by many data scientists and researchers is that data is the most important thing. Um, and I certainly think that's starting to be true because, uh, model architectures, I, obviously they will progress and change and, and there are improvements, but there are a lot of model architectures that are starting to be very good. They're easy to use. So data can be a huge source of advantage. Um, so you know, I'm part of a team right now that's starting to think of, think about building these biofoundation models. And it's a matter of picking a problem where we think NVIDIA can uniquely uh, succeed. Um, NVIDIA is not a drug discovery company, so we don't generate our own data. Um, that doesn't mean we can't get it um, from places, but we have to think very carefully about that. Um, and we're also trying to think very carefully about, like I said, you know, we do have a lot of compute. So that is, that is a very significant advantage. Um, but what are, what is the data we want to use? What is the problem? We don't, we also want to really, we want to, we're thinking about what are grand challenge problems in, in biology and, you know, trying, trying to make sure we position ourselves to, to work towards something that is a really fundamentally difficult problem. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, what are some of the potential grand challenge problems? I mean, I don't know that I should say too much, but oh, okay. I think these are probably fairly obvious things like um, how do you simulate protein-protein interactions? How do you simulate parts of a cell, functionality of a cell? The way cells work, um, isn't. there's not an absolute cell model. There are temporal parts to that. There are tissue-specific aspects. You know, all of these things are very hard, so. Yeah, that makes, that makes a lot of sense. Um, okay, cool. So trying to create these sorts of things, you probably need a pretty um, like multidisciplinary team. Um, I know in your PyData talk, you spoke about building a team. In your previous project, you went from two uh, to like about, what, 30 or 40 people? Yeah, the broader, yeah, the broader product team is, is about 40, right, right close to 40 people right now, so. Yeah. How, how was that? What, what was that like, um, b b building a team? I, I mean, there's so much that goes into it, right? There's all these machine learning problems that we face, but dealing with people is a whole other, uh, 
a whole other level. People are always the most challenging problem. (laughs) (laughs) I think first and foremost, uh, you got to get the culture right. Um, Team dynamics matter so, so much. And you have to cultivate an environment where, um, you know, people are, feel valued for their expertise. They feel like they're working on things that they import, that are important, that are of some level of enjoyment to them. Um, but that also align, you know, that's always like all of getting all the three buckets to align of like, uh, things, your interest, product impact, getting those things to align is, is very hard, but try to strike a balance. Um, so hiring certainly culture is is really important. Um, we certainly not every role, but some roles we do look for some domain experience because there are a lot of details and nuances to scientific data. And it's even genomics data; it's different from protein data, is different from cheminformatics data, um, and then you know usually some deep learning experience. Um, one thing that is is very true is that the field is changing so fast. The things that we as a team have had to do have changed and evolved pretty quickly. So it's also figuring out how you can hire for people that can adapt and learn new things. And I mean, layer on top of that, the speed at which the field is, is changing, which we've discussed, but also NVIDIA comes out with new GPUs pretty regularly. In fact, I think they're it's a very regular cycle and maybe even increasing in frequency from what it has been. So we want to surface the best of those GPUs. So that means constantly updating what you're doing or the way you have things implemented um, in your software stack. So benchmarking, lots of benchmarking and not just predictive power, but inference and training time. So we do a, we do a lot of that. So right. those are, those are very different, I think from, what um, data scientist roles might be like at other 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 companies? Yeah, you really need to have a strong background. I think it's always so helpful. Well, like in your case, right? Like you you worked in the lab before now working on these sorts of problems. So even though I know you were saying it's hard to kind of know if it makes sense, but you do have a general sense. You know, is that like, number is that number even 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 remotely right? Right. Yeah, definitely. Is it even in the right ballpark? Yeah. Which is so important for for all of these problems. I think yeah, there's a lot of things. I guess one thing I'm curious about. So yeah, you've played you know different roles, right? So you've been an AI researcher, and that was more hands on, and now you've kind of transitioned into a manager role. Are there any anything that I'm missing in in there? Are there... No, that's I think that's the oh, those are the two. Of it. Yeah, those are the, the two. Biggest. I I taught a, I was a teacher. I taught a data science boot camp. Oh, okay. Um, uh, after I left the NIH, I was basically learning more machine learning as I was teaching it. <laughs> oh, okay. Um, that's the best way to learn. Yeah, it is by teaching it because then you're forced to really know all of it, and then someone will ask you some question. You'll be like. You know, I never really uh, thought of it like that. Or when you're forced to explain it to someone, you're like, oh, I see this gap in my knowledge. Yeah. Humility. (laughs) It's good to have a little bit of humility. That's also very important on a a multidisciplinary team um, is to be open to learning from each other. So, yeah. Any other traits that you're looking for in, in a team? I think, you know, obviously technical excellence and, you know, experience um, are, are important, but I culture and attitude are the, the really big ones um, because I think they 
can make or break. <laughs> yeah. A coworker of mine just shared this piece. It was about looking for people who are hungry, humble, and smart. But yeah. not smart in the traditional way. Smart in like, you know when you're in a meeting, what you're saying, how it's going to influence the people in the room kind of thing. Emotional. Yeah. yeah Emo uh, EQ. High some, EQ. Yes, yeah, some, yeah. yeah, some high EQ. Very hard to find people that check all of those boxes. It is. But that's that's the fun part of everything. Yeah, I think yeah. I was just going to say, yeah, becoming a manager, it's really fun to see these extremely talented people grow and develop in, in their role and start to lead things. And that part is, is really fun about a manager. It's really fun, like, seeing them succeed and cheering them on. So Yeah, absolutely. I've spoken to people who have done, you know, a similar transition from sort of like a IC. I, I, mm -hmm. I, I never really... No one's really an IC, right? You, you're, working, yeah. you're always working in a team. A team, yeah. But sort of that IC role to um, the manager role and like this idea of like, oh, I'm a 5X, 10X engineer. But when you go into managing, you can actually unblock so many people that you can have a bigger uh, impact on, on your company, yeah. actually. So, yeah, that's it's it's such an interesting it's such an interesting thing because people want to be very like sometimes like you want to be very focused on what you're doing right mm -hmm. and then like you don't want to be distracted by all of these other things but i guess it's just each person needs to sort of find their own balance you know between, yeah. between that yeah it's like nvidia is a very ground up company um which i it's one of the things i love about it but it but then it's helping uh your your mentees to understand what how to prioritize things because it gets to be kind of nuanced or how to like help with the situation, but not get completely sucked into something that probably isn't a top priority for you. Right. Is, is like the nuances. And I think there's some of it too, just acknowledging that the, the work that we do is hard and helping them understand that it's expected. I expect that this is going to take a while to, to learn how to do it. So I don't, I don't love, I kind of made a face at the five X 10 X engineer. I don't love that stuff. I don't know why. Because what, what does it mean? What does really it really mean? Right. Yeah. Right. I know. Yeah. But people say it. Yeah. And but I like um. But yeah, just acknowledging that what we do is hard, and that that's okay. Like you're gonna have to work at this. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I think working with other people, you know, where where I'm at, we have so many just like initiatives and projects that are taking place, and you just you can't get so in the details on everything, but having a team that can be a sounding board um, and having someone that like you can say, okay, this is what I'm up to. These are the next things I was thinking of. And then someone can kind of say, well, I did a project that was similar to this and ABC, you'll probably go down this rabbit hole. So maybe do DEF, you know, like, yeah. And yeah. It, it's, it's really nice to, um, yeah, it's it, working in a team. It's incredible. I think, at, at one point in my life, there I was. I always thought like, oh, I can go very far myself. Um, but being a part of a startup is where I realized like, wow, you can do unbelievable things as a team. As a team, yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. So, you know, not not really transitioning, but just the next uh, the next question. Just talking about machine learning, and we can still talk about the same stuff. 
what's an important question that you believe remains unanswered uh, in machine learning? Yeah, so I alluded to this a little bit when I was uh, talking about my postdoc. Um, so biological and chemical modalities. So number one, they're, they're, they aren't text, even though we represent them that way. They're, they're three-dimensional, but they're also dynamic. And that motion is very fundamental to the, the roles that they play in biology, to protein-protein interactions, like proteins bind together, to um, the binding of a, of a compound or a drug, a ligand, um, ligand or a drug. Usually a drug is just a, a ligand that, that binds in a specific way and causes a, influences an enzyme. Um, those are really fundamental to biology, and we don't have good representations for them yet. Um, not even AlphaFold is trained on uh, the structure. The structural data are X-ray crystallographic structures um, from uh, a repository called the Protein Data Bank, which is if you publish a structure uh, in a scientific journal, you you, you have to deposit the coordinates there. Um, but those are static, and there's you know so they're static, and they're also like. To, to crystallize a protein, it has to pack into this ordered lattice. So it's whatever conformation of a protein packed into this lattice. Like right. many people don't don't think about that, um, but it's they're not moving. So there's there's very and sometimes protein motions are small, but sometimes they're really big. They're really very very major conformational changes. So I don't we just don't we don't have a good way of describing that in the machine learning models yet. We're starting to think about it. There's ways you can collect data, like, for example, molecular dynamics simulation um, data can can be used for that to, to some degree, but we just don't have good models yet for it. Yeah, and so, so dynamic here, just to make sure, you're talking like changing through time, right? Basically, yeah. like, it's not stationary, it's, 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 it's actually changing. Yeah, okay, yeah, that's... Um... So as much as I'm interested in machine learning and artificial intelligence, I'm very interested in natural intelligence also <laughs> and how the brain works and everything. And uh, when I was first um, really took a deep dive into that, I found that to be the case also, is that people looked at things a lot in like a static way and then mm -hmm. understanding that it's like things are, every, it's, it's dynamic, complex, adaptive, yeah. changing system. Um, and that it's not in isolation also, which is what you're, what you're yeah. mentioning to how it interacts with, with the other, um, yes, cells, yeah. cells are changing. They're different in different tissues. So there's like, you know, physical differences. There are temporal differences with cells, like in disease states, the cells interact with each other, you know, so there's, it's a, it's a really, really complex coupled system. Right that is associated with biology. Yeah. So all of this, you know, amazing progress that's happening, um, you know, in your field with AI drug discovery and natural language processing, really just like across the board, right? There's like a new multimodal model that comes out every day. There's a new technique that comes out every day. How do you view the gap uh, between like the hype of this frenzied state that the field is in and the reality um, of AI? I think so. Certainly, you have to accept that it's a thing, <laughs> and you have to uh, you have to evaluate papers very carefully. Uh, I think you have to speak to researchers in the field, going to conferences. Um, I'm actually after this, I'm going to go listen to. This. There's a bunch of NeurIPS. Um, 
workshops. And actually, I was laughing because when I went to NURBS in like 2018, there was like one biology workshop. Now, I think there's like five each day or something on Friday right. and Saturday. It's crazy. Um, but talking to researchers, talking to those in pharma companies that are in the field that can help you really understand um, the flaws in, in what you have developed, which is, is not always fun. Um, but yeah, I think we have to be very careful. We have to make sure that we're doing good baselines. There was a paper published recently um, in the single cell genomics field where they evaluated two transformer models and found that linear regression did better than both of those oh, models. Oh no, that's taboo. Oops. You're not allowed. You're not allowed to say that. <laughs> <laughs> so I think really making sure that we do the right baselines. A hundred percent, man, the amount of times I think that every single person that I've spoken to, uh, for this podcast has spoken about the importance of getting baselines and in, in the work that I'm doing, it's, it's so true too. I know I was briefly telling you about this before, but, um, yeah, like natural language processing for some of the simpler tasks, people are trying to throw, you know, the heaviest monstrous of a model at problems that can be solved using simple embeddings and either logistic regression or support vector machine or at least get a baseline with it right Right. like to at least just see because maybe you'll find a problem in your other pipeline just because you know just based off of what you did with uh your with the other um pipeline that you created to get a baseline if nothing else the baseline is something that you can put into an interface or your product to to keep building so that you're not blocked by this model because my my joke is that especially deep learning it's like an ideal gas it will expand to fill whatever space and time you give it (laughs) (laughs) but it's but it's true even cheminformatics there's cheminformaticians will tell you that they've used machine learning for a very long time and that random forest models and some simple fingerprint uh features of of small molecules are pretty hard to beat and they're not wrong. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, yeah, it's true. And right? yeah, if you ask, if you ask some Kaglers, they'll say XG boost is all you need. Um, that's, that's the joke there, but no ensemble ensemble models. You can really do a lot of amazing things. Yeah. And in a little bit of a different perspective, I'm thinking about your PyData talk, you spoke about creating um, a product where you were visualizing things that wasn't really heavy on, on machine learning and the importance of that. Do you want to speak to it a little bit? Sure. Um, I guess, do you, are you you asking sort of generally or are you asking about that particular? Well, no, just the importance of like visualizing things before you even jump into the machine learning parts. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. I understood that. Yeah. Under understanding your data, like I said, data is the most important thing and getting to know it on a, on a very personal level is, is really useful. Um, and it can give you ideas for different scenarios that you want to test with the data. Um, how do you split your data? So, uh, for example, with, with protein structure prediction, um, the data are often split temporally, uh, based on how they were on the, the data, which they were entered into the protein data bank. So, you know, one hypothesis is that that enables you to predict future structures, right? And that's not a bad hypothesis. However, having been a structural biologist, I can tell you that there is almost certainly bound to be a lot of uh, redundancy in proteins that are deposited later because 
if you solve a crystal structure, even if it's something that's been solved before, but you do it as part of your paper as like a check of something to ensure that like you didn't disrupt, I don't know, the structure or something, which that, by the way, that's the thing that is done. Then it gets deposited in the data bank. So if it ends up on the other side of that temporal split, there's actually a lot of redundancy in the data. So, mm. so then you start to think, okay, what are better ways to do this? Maybe you cluster them, um, but how do you cluster them? You cluster them by amino acid sequence. Well, protein constructs can be cluster, can be crystallized. They can they can be changed when they're crystallized. Do you cluster it by three dimensional similarity, and then how and how do you do the alignment? Like it's a very nuanced problem. Right. So getting to know the data and visualizing it, where does the model do really well and why? Where does the model really fail and why? And sometimes it's useful to look at an aggregate plot, but there were situations I was working with someone on the team where uh, there's like angular rotomers. It's hard to explain, but there's different angles that are predicted. And so we started going through the things that the ones that were really off because we saw this periodicity. And so we started to understand that one of the, there was many issues, but I think one of the issues was probably <clears throat> the software that was measuring the angles didn't mm. understand some aspects of chemistry. Right. So, but when you start to see the aggregate is useful, but so are the examples. Right. Yeah. I always, as much as in the work that I'm doing, we, we want to automate like a lot of it, obviously we want to streamline things. Mm -hmm. there's always this step in the beginning when you have a new data set where you just like just visualize it in some way just think about how could you even possibly visualize it um mm -hmm. the way that you're thinking about it is like all the different either the states or the different features that you want to be looking mm -hmm. at but mm -hmm. just even going through that exercise gives you um this like inherent like not inherent but like a little bit of a more intuitive understanding of right. what's gonna what's taking place and then it'll give you some nice hunches as you try to figure out you know right. even just the problem space itself um yeah. yeah that was really cool i i i also i just have a real love of visualizations um so a lot of the eye candy in your uh presentation was very really attracted me also yeah yeah there's <laughs> I probably there's some cool videos of protein structures that are in there. And that was really just for fun eye candy because they're really cool to see. They yeah. Are, they are beautiful. Very that beautiful. Was what, when I saw those, when I was learning biochemistry and, and then taking biochemistry in undergrad, that was the thing that made me really fall in love with structural biology. It was like, wow, this is really cool. I right. Do this. Yeah. A picture is there's, you can't even put it into words, right? It, yeah. It, it really it's powerful. Yeah, it could be very powerful. So now you've been working on, um, you know, drug discovery using AI and developing these sorts of tools. But so how have you seen the, this, the field change since, since you started working in the industry? Yeah, I think in general, um, when I started working in the industry, data science was, was still kind of a, a young, new thing. And so, you know, a lot of, there were a lot of generalists and at least, you know, maybe this is biased by my, by having been in, in my field too, but I start to see a lot of, a lot more, um, individuals in the field who are, who are coming to the field, but they have been trained in a domain and then they picked up the data science as part of their domain specific education. And I think some of that, it just reflects the way universities are starting to integrate, um, these computational skills 
um, into in, into their curricula, which I think is very important, like teaching a compute literate, machine learning you know literate um, a student is is really important. So I I start to see that. I think that is very useful. Um, and you know, demonstrating some level of deep understanding of data will benefit you, even if you change domains, in my opinion, because then you at least you have a frame of reference for like the kind of ways that things really went wrong in the other domain. So, right. I think that's a big one that I see changing. Um, I think some of the machine learning tasks are getting to be a lot easier. We have libraries, we have AutoML, we have things that start to, you know, even hyperparameter tuning for deep learning models is, is getting a little easier. It's always hard if you're at the cutting edge of, of what's developed, but um, I think that stuff's all, it's all changing. Right. I think, yeah, like at one point, there weren't that many models. There probably weren't that many resources. Now there's like too many. <laughs> there's like, yeah. there's so much out there. There's so many, there's a lot of libraries. A lot of them are overlapping. There's a lot of vendors out there that are trying to do the same things. Mm -hmm. That Yeah, there's this whole auto ML movement. But yeah, that that's 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 interesting. The way that people can learn about a particular topic, you can start to apply these things more easily. So maybe they can get a better understanding right. of the pros and cons of it. So they can understand what they're learning like there at a deeper level, but then you can also take that and apply it to other fields as well. So yeah, that, yeah. that's, that's going to be a very, that's an interesting trend. Maybe a loaded question, but how do you think um, machine learning will change in the next 10 years? I guess, for you, like, what impact do you think it will have on scientific discovery? Yeah, I think there are definitely, it will profoundly benefit the, the set of scientists who understand how to incorporate it in their work and how to critically evaluate it. Um, it's a question I get a lot from my former colleagues, for example, in Mars spectroscopy and structural biology. Um, I think it will continue to become more of a part of, of the field. So, you know, thinking about structures from AlphaFold, can, can and how should they be deposited into like the protein data bank, right? That's a thing to think about. I don't, you know, I don't, it's not my job to solve, but certainly it's an interesting right. thing to think about. Um, what does that mean? Is it any different? I mean, structures are computed from other data. I'm not sure it's different. Maybe it is, but how do you represent that? Um, I think the field in general, like I sort of alluded to, needs to uh, find better ways to represent biology. And right now, there's certainly no tr no one way to represent it. I think that's a very open question. Like with small molecules, there's language um, called smiles. There's graphs. Graph models do really well, by the way, with small molecules. There's three-dimensional representations as well. Same with protein. There's a variety of ways. So, so I don't. I think that will crystallize a bit more. Um, trying to think of what else. Yeah, I think just really big picture. I think those who learn how to use these tools and how to interrogate them will, will figure out useful ways. I figure out ways to use GPT and for in my, you know, my everyday life all the time. And we have internal NLP models at NVIDIA. We're not, we don't enter proprietary data, of course, in public models, but 
using those, playing around with those from time to time to, to try to do things. Yeah. But you, you have to kind of experiment. Like, it's not it's not straightforward. So you actually have to devote time to figuring out how to do that. Yes. Um, I, I think, at least, so. No, definitely. And for technologists or for innovators, having these tools then allows you to do so much more. I mean, that's why it's so incredible. Um, I don't know, like like the music industry like is benefiting from all of this stuff i mean the beatles mm-hmm. released a new song right like that's right. the crazy like that's nuts yeah. <laughs> because they were able to create a way of um segmenting john lennon's voice from the tv uh in this old track that they had and honestly that that i listen to that wow. track too often it like haunt it's like haunting for some reason <laughs> yeah and, i don't yeah. I don't know what the analogous thing is there for science. Oh. <laughs> we'll have to see. Like, I mean, there are, there are models now where they can where um, dynamics can be predicted. So it's literally a model that does this that like predicts the next frames of the simulation. They've got a ways to go yet before they're simulating proteins and simulating proteins on the the full time scale. But maybe that's the analogy of of yeah. what you're thinking of. I'm not. I'm not really sure. Yeah. But. I'm just saying how cool it is. Yeah. 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 <laughs> and just what and just what becomes possible and then I just think about this uh common uh story that they say it's in a book prediction machines like okay. when new technology comes out they talk about accountants and how ex- when Excel came out, there was like this new spreadsheet tool, basically. Uh-huh. And then people were saying, oh, you know, all accountants are going to lose, you know, there's not going to be any accounts. But all it did was it actually created so much more, like a richer, people could then apply more human thinking to it. And they were yeah. able to do more art of finance and create more sophisticated models. Right, and right. yeah, in some sense, like... It allows you to do a higher level work. It does sometimes make things more complex and conflate things as well. So it'll be interesting to see over, say, the next decade, you know, what's just kind of hype and what Mm -hmm. is what are actually tools that are enabling us to do these incredible things when it comes to, you know, drug discovery, being able to try and create, you know, all of these different things that can help us fight different diseases help us deal with you know create new medicines um it's so i mean it's so exciting from the outside looking in it's just such it's such exciting work and knowing what uh like thinking about what the process is of trying to get a drug from idea to market and how long that is and if there's anything that can be done to expedite that in a safe way right. um is is, awesome. is is really is really pretty yeah it's pretty awesome i mean what yeah. i it's probably like the coolest thing to be working yeah. on thanks yeah and I, I mean it's it's tremendously important we're like certainly don't wish another pandemic on on the world but i, I think it's pretty likely it's going to happen again unfortunately right so how do we be ready and think about the next one and how do we how do we have the tools in place so that we don't have to scale up, you know, vaccine manufacturing as, as much as, as we did this time. Right. So, yeah. Yeah. 
yeah, obviously we don't want anything like that to happen, but it's sort of inevitable that there will be something along that level. But knowing that there are teams and companies and research institutes that have the tools that can enable them to quickly combat that sort of stuff is a little reassuring. There's still the human element. Right. People have to actually do, you know, and I know. but yes, but at least we'll <laughs> you can just give people the tools to to do, you know, yeah, the the best they can. So switching gears into the learning from machine learning aspect, uh, we'll get into some advice questions. Everyone's favorite sure. type of question <laughs> for people who are just starting out in the field, thinking, "Hey, I want to be a data scientist," or that they're doing some biochem stuff. What, what what's advice that you would give to people that are just starting out? I think the the this one's probably always data, data, data. It's it's always it's always about the data. Um, yes. I think there are the cool thing with machine learning. It's a very open community. There are folks on you know who participate in Kaggle competitions or something. If you want to get to know a particular domain better, there are active discussions there on those competitions. You can learn learn more about the field that way. Just you know, someone that's something that's relatively accessible to all people. But yeah, I think that's the biggest thing is is data. You're I think in this field, you need to look to figure out what works for you as a way to continue to learn. And that isn't just reading papers or, you know, maybe it's testing a few new tools as they come out, these new visualization interpretation tools, as you were sort of alluding to, you know, maybe it's that, maybe it's continuing to refine your software development skills. Um, maybe it's reading papers. It depends what, what you're doing, but Figuring out a way to do that is um, important. I think it's harder as you get older. I mean, I so I was completely self-taught with machine learning, um, but I, I used to like get up at five a.m. on Saturday and do my do all my machine learning courses and my homework for the week. And I, man, I can't even. It was hard. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You, the An- Andrew Ang class. Yeah. Oh yeah, all that stuff. Jeff Hitton's class. Yeah. That that was that was how I that was how I did it. And then, yeah, certainly I've kept learning since then, right? The field has changed profoundly since then even, so. Yeah, that's a trait that I find, I guess, in data scientists and software engineers, the really good ones, it's just they're capable, but then it's just this idea of just continuous learning, right? Like, I'm going to just, I'm going to continue to learn the newest things out there, but then they have... Tools, VS Code, yeah, whatever it is, like, master... The tools that, but you don't, it's not mastering all your tools. It's mastering the tools that matter. Right. And that's the hard part. <laughs> and it's the ability to master a tool. Right. And I think yeah. that's like school. It doesn't like, it's not like everything that you learn in school, you're actually applying in your job. But for someone yeah. in a position like you, like you can consume research paper is probably better than, you know, 99.9% of the 99.9% of the world at this point. And like being able to take the pieces of it that are applicable for you, yeah. But yeah, in in my fi- in in this field, it's important to understand, yeah, like which tools are important and how quickly can I get onboarded onto that tool. Right. Right. Yeah. A little variation of the last one. What advice would you give yourself? I guess earlier in your career. 
Yeah, I was certainly when I was doing this transition, I was very intimidated. Um, it's it's a big thing to sort of make make a a switch from something you'd I'd spent at that time I don't know eleven twelve years of my life studying this and. Um, certainly, I still get to work at the intersection of science, but it's very different. It's a very different type of job. I love it, but it was very, um, it was very intimidating and stressful at the time to make that jump. <laughs> right, right. So, what would it be? Just you're gonna don't, make it. You're gonna make it through. It's gonna be I okay. Think, or don't be intimidated. Don't be intimidated, and I think keep your ear to the ground about things like this. Don't be so focused on your, you know, it's, it's important to focus on your domain, your, your world as a structural biologist, as NMR spectroscopist, um, as I was. But it's also important to be aware of other trends and like, think about it, like, you know, because I think the people that maybe are earlier on in the fields figured out that, oh yeah, this is a thing, I should go learn about this. this there's this whole revolution going on outside of my purview of my day-to-day maybe i should at least try to understand it right yeah keep a pulse on you know the progress that's taking place in in other fields yeah that's something that i learn well i mean i guess i've always sort of tried to do it just my interests have been so varied that i've been able to do it but recently i listened to um jeremy howard uh from fast Mm -hmm. ai Mm -hmm. just like really hammering that point home like if you're interested in natural language processing it's okay to learn something about computer vision if you're interested in computer vision you can do activity recognition like whatever it is there'll be some thing that you learn in signal processing that will help you because when it comes down to it it's representing things numerically and it's doing manipulations to it it's pattern matching right yep so there's always Oh yeah, sorry to interrupt. That's why I, I said that. Like, I think you. Sh- I think there's a lot of value in having domain expertise and knowing and understanding something deeply, what works and what doesn't work. And I don't actually believe that it prevents you from switching domains later on if you want. I think it is an asset because you have dealt with some very fundamental problems with data and modeling, and you will see you will see them apply. Uh, many of them in different ways, perhaps, in that other domain. But I think it teaches you what it takes to really interrogate the data and build a good model. Absolutely. Something that's, you know, interesting. I, I know that, you know, you work in this in the field with, like, so many things going on. But who are, who are some people in the field that, that influence you and, and your work? I would say certainly my colleagues at NVIDIA, um, they are tremendously talented and and make me, um, you know, rethink and think, think hard about problems every day and sometimes help me when I'm stuck. Sometimes I help them when I'm stuck. I feel very, very fortunate to have, uh, to work at such an incredible place. Um, I would say my, my postdoctoral advisor, Art Palmer, and my grad school advisor, um, Patrick Lawyer, they taught, and Scott Strobel, they taught me to think very carefully and critically about what I do and how to think about problems where they're empirically, you know, the problems that are very empirical. Um, and it actually has a lot of applications in, in machine learning because it's a very empirical field in many ways. 
certainly in the, in, the, in the domain that I'm specifically in, I think Alex Reeves from Evolutionary Scale, they've built some of the best, very, very well-known protein representation models out there. Deborah Marks, who's a professor at Harvard, has done um, amazing things in machine learning and development of some very fundamental uh, techniques with protein sequences, and as well as, as um, does uh, experiments to back up the work. So I think anyone who does both wet lab experiments and machine learning, I think, gets a special place of recognition from me, at least, <laughs> because I believe that's very hard to do, and it really, really informs the work you do. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that make that makes a lot of sense. And um, being on Learning from Machine Learning, I get to ask this question. What has a career in machine learning taught you about life? Yeah, I would say, so the importance of continu of continually learning, um, whatever it means in, in your life, whether it's, I learned, I learned how to snow ski two years ago. <laughs> And I wish I'd learned when I was young and, and made of rubber. <laughs> and, I'm not afraid to bite it, but, but I'm a lot more afraid of tearing an ACL um, as an adult, but it's fun. And so this Christmas we're going skiing um, and I'm excited to eventually get to the point where um, I'm able to ski on, on blues pretty regularly. My husband is an excellent skier. So um, at some point I, I want to get there. That's my, that's my goal. Nice. I think... Um, how to debug complex empirical problems and how to think rationally about like, how do I try this and how do I debug this quickly? Because it's not always as easy as you might think um, to solve it. And then I think um, I never really thought about classification problems that much as a scientist. So, you know, it really makes you think about like, there's many ways of being wrong. Yes. <laughs> and yes. sometimes some of those ways matter a lot more than others. So, so really understand what being wrong means and what you need to optimize for. It's not always accuracy, for example. Exactly. Um, sometimes false positives and false negatives, they don't always carry the same weight. Yeah, you beat me to it. I was going to say everyone wants to know the accuracy of the model, um, and I try to say all errors are not equal. Yeah. They still want to just know the accuracy. They don't. They don't care. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, I I try to explain it to them, but then if you bring out a confusion matrix, it gets a little too confusing. But no, <laughs> it's important. The takeaway of just like all errors aren't the same, and some matter much more. Uh, some matter much more than others. That, yeah. That's 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 a really good takeaway. And then just about the debugging complex empirical problems. So what is it? What, what makes it so hard? Just all the moving parts or? Sometimes it could take a long, you know, if you have a problem, for example, with, I'm just going to pick something, uh, training where it starts to throw NANs, but it doesn't happen until pretty far into it. How can you figure out what the problem is without, you know, with minimizing the time it takes to solve the problem, right? Like, is there, are there things you can scale down? Can you figure out if there's a piece of, uh, a data point can you figure out if you know like just learning how to debug that in an efficient way is it, it can be really tricky i don't know i i certainly think it's hard <laughs> no absolutely absolutely and being able to approach those problems in like a cool calm and collected way yeah you will get well most of the time you'll be able to figure it out yeah Sometimes I get CUDA in it errors, and then I don't like those. Oh I'm no! Like, oh boy! Oh boy! Then, <laughs> yeah. Well, then you have to go ask someone. 
was yeah, going to, from... This one's going to be a while. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Kudo alignment right. errors. No, those are not yeah. my <laughs> Or those out of memory errors. And it's like, now this is when you're going to throw me that one? Okay, fine. Yeah. Um, yes. Uh, wow, Michelle, it's been such a pleasure. This was so, so cool to dive into this area. Thanks. It was my pleasure, too. Yeah understanding how people even begin to approach how to do um you know drug discovery leveraging ai it's 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 such a fascinating field uh, i i think i'm going to use this as motivation to continue to learn more about this for for people that want to learn more about you and, and your work uh where, where would a good place to go probably my website my papers talks end up there I, I do need to update it. That's a, it's a holiday project is, is to go add a few more things, including my PyData talk. But that's probably the best place. Um, I, I have Twitter and Mastodon. I have, well, I guess X these days. Um, yes. I don't tweet as much these days. Um, maybe that'll change. I'm a I'm modern scientist on Twitter, but uh, whatever accounts I'm using at the moment will be linked to from, from my webpage, which is michellelingill.com. Cool. Um, and I can add some of those to the show notes as well. Great. And I encourage listeners to definitely check out uh, your most recent keynote at Pi Data NYC. I'll, I'll add that to I'll add that as well. What, what an amazing talk. Um, Michelle, thank you so much. I really appreciate you giving me the time and letting me pick your brain for a bit. Yeah, it was all my pleasure. Thank you. Thanks thank for the invitation. You. This episode of Learning from Machine Learning, Dr. Michelle Gill shared her incredible journey from wet lab biochemist to driving cutting edge AI at NVIDIA. Her work helps address one of healthcare's biggest challenges by enabling researchers to do drug discovery both faster and better. Michelle discussed the critical need for better machine learning representations for biological structures and her insights on leading a multidisciplinary team. Thank you for listening, and remember to subscribe and share with your friends and colleagues. Until next time, keep on learning.